In the 1997 conspiracy theory movie, Mel Gibson's character continually shares with Julia Roberts' character his various paranoid conspiracy theories. However, it turns out that one of them is true, and they really are after him. And so the conspiracy theory movie is an action thriller of what happens when it is no longer a conspiracy theory, but has become a conspiracy reality. In real life, conspiracy realities are not thrilling, but quite frightening. Our last passage ended with the Lord saying to Paul, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The encouragement in this is that Paul is not going to stay in Jerusalem, where the crowd wants him dead and where injustice has prevailed so far. No, the Lord is sending Paul to Rome. What will follow, however, is some very dark times, and God will be silent. The book of Acts does not record the Lord speaking again to Paul in the rest of this chapter or in the chapters that are coming amid some pretty tough situations. And it can often seem that way for us that in the times when it is the most dark times, that God is also the most silent. Well, Bible teacher Harry Ironside says quite rightly, God is never closer to his people than when they cannot see his face. Take courage. The Lord is with you. Take courage. The Lord will never leave you nor forsake you. Take courage. The Lord is sovereign over your situation. So take courage. So our passage this morning is of a great encouragement to us when we face dark times and it seems that God is silent and that everything is out of our hands, that we might see this before we read it. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Our Lord, as we have worshipped you in song, we now worship you in study and are glad for the opportunity to have you speak to us by your word. And so it is that we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and to bear witness to the reading and to the proclamation of your word, that we would hear your word for what it is, your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Our reading this morning starts in Acts 23, verse 12, and then goes through the end of the chapter. Listen to God's word. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. 
They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias to His Excellency Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Anapotris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. Well, first we see the conspiracy reality. Our passage begins the next morning. So it's the next morning after the things that had taken place that we read last week. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Wow, how very God-honoring of you. Well done. So we read in Deuteronomy 6, we are to take our oaths in the name of the Lord. And there's a sense in which they are taking an oath in the name of the Lord. And this is their oath. Notice again how the mob mentality continues. And notice how the conspiracy theory becomes the conspiracy reality. The Jews' conspiracy theory is that Paul is guilty of all the things that he's accused of. Because they perceive this as true, they form a new conspiracy. We saw the same thing last Sunday with NFL conspiracies and everyone with their own solution. The mob mentality was in full force this past seven days over something that happened in the NFL. It wasn't a war or natural disaster or refugee atrocities, but football players that were the headlines this past week. Because when it comes to media, including social media, truth is not the goal. Ratings are the goal. Professional media seeks the biggest ratings. Social media seeks the most likes. Too many churches are also interested in ratings. Nickels and noses. How many people and how much money? Nickels and noses. But the church must be interested in the ministry of truth, along with wisdom and justice and grace, as we saw last week. Mass media, and social media has become mass media, is mob mentality media, which does not get to the heart the Apostle Paul and the book of Acts shows that God continually goes to the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue isn't the ringleader or the crowd or the authorities or the target or the silent. They are just players in this drama. Last week, we heard Paul say that the heart of the issue is his hope in the resurrection. Well, now we're talking. 
People, however, want a simplistic view, a simplistic solution to a simplistic issue. But the issue isn't simplistic as the flag or the president or the NFL or ratings or racism. The issue is not as simplistic as one thing. The idols of the heart are revealed in whatever issue hits the news. But of course, the news media is not going to talk about the issues of the heart. It unwittingly lets the idols compete against each other. And so the idol of identity competes against the idol of personal freedom, which competes against the idol of national pride, which competes against the idol of personal expression, which competes against the idols of sports and money and ego and whatever else, all of which competes against the idol of I told you so. The true issue is rooted in the idols of the heart and the commitment to self rather than God. And so the true solution is found in the crucified and resurrected Christ. When we talk about our own sinful sinful contribution and then take the time to be quick to listen and slow to speak, wow, that's missing, isn't it? And then talk about creation, fall, redemption, restoration, then we begin to get to the heart of the issue. And so here, the word translated conspiracy or plot literally means a swearing together, swearing an oath in the negative sense. And conspiracies need plurality in order to really take life. Verse 13 tells us more than 40 men were involved in this plot. If one person has a conspiracy, then that just seems like that person's wacky. But if 40 people have a swearing together, then it becomes a thing. It's just as bad as the original conspiracy, but now because more people are saying it, it starts to be believed as truth. If one person comes and says, hey, I'm going to kill Paul, everybody would be like, dude, chill, right? But if 40 people come together and say, we're going to kill Paul, okay, let's give this a shot. And it gets affirmation. And so now that they have the, the numbers, then they go to the chief priests and the elders for affirmation, and the conspiracy grows. And this is how it works in our world. The lead bully pulls together his entourage with an idea that he has. The lead mean girl gets some of the other girls together. It's the chief complainer in the office that comes up with a plan and recruits others to it. A conspiracy starts with one person, the lead bully or a very small group, but it needs numbers. And the ringleader, the plotter, rallies a group together to use them for his purpose. In some cases, it's more difficult to gather co-conspirators. In this case, it seems quite easy. It really depends on the situation. In this case, the conspirators are known as the zealots, similar to today what we would call terrorists. Do you see why it's important not to get sucked into the mob mentality and become part of the crowd of zealots? They operate in secrecy, plotting against, based on gossip, and hearing only one side of the issue. Not interested in truth, but simply accomplishing whatever they have predetermined to accomplish. Jesus once said to the Jews who plotted against him to kill him, he said, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies 
The devil is the father of lies. But watch how the sovereign God exposes the lie. Paul's nephew, the son of Paul's sister. We didn't even know Paul had a sister. In fact, we don't really know much about Paul's family at all. We know that he was born a Roman citizen and also a Jew, sent to the best Jewish teacher, Gamaliel. There are hints that Paul came from a family with affluence and power. But when Paul was converted to Christ, did his family disown him? We don't know. How unlikely that Paul's nephew is who the Lord uses to unmask this plot and defeat the father of lies. But isn't that exactly the way the Lord works? He uses the most unlikely of people to accomplish his great things. Moses, the son of slave parents, who went off and lived in the desert as a shepherd for 40 years because he killed an Egyptian. David, the youngest son of an obscure family from an obscure people, an obscure town. Jesus, born of a poor woman from a poor Nazareth town. God doesn't use great people. God does great things with ordinary people. Moses and David were not great people. They served a great God. And how about the circumstances? Paul's nephew just happens to be the right person in the right place at the right time to overhear this whole plot. We often pray that God would change our circumstances rather than change our hearts. Say, God, if you just... If you just change the situation, then everything would be okay. God creates circumstances. God is master over every situation. And so Paul's nephew first goes to the barracks to tell Paul of this plot, which tells us that Paul has been given a bit of freedom that his nephew could come to him and visit so freely. And then Paul is able to tell one of the centurions to take his nephew to the commander, which tells us the commander trusts Paul certainly a whole lot more than he trusts the mob at this point. And the commander, in the interest of his own safety and the safety of his soldiers, and also certainly for the safety of Paul and Paul's nephew, hears and believes the conspiracy plot told him and tells the young man, don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me. Because the commander has a plan because God has a plan. Let me say that again. The commander has a plan because God has a plan. And the plan gets revealed along with the letter of transfer beginning in verse 23. The commander tells two of his centurions, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. That Paul is taken safely is an understatement. Paul is accompanied by 470 troops of the Roman army. Foot soldiers, spearmen, and the cavalry escort Paul out of town. And Paul gets not just a horse, but mounts, horses, plural. He doesn't even have to walk to travel the 35 miles from Jerusalem to Anapotris. Out of harm's way were then the 70-member cavalry accompanies him the rest of the way to Caesarea. 40 people try to kill him, but 470 troops to keep him safe. My, how things have changed in the last 24 hours, even the last two days when the crowd was stirred up in the temple trying to kill him. 470 troops of the Roman army to protect Paul. My, how things have changed from a week ago when Paul first arrived in Jerusalem 
And he and others were trying to figure out what Paul could do to appease the Jews and the crowd and stay safe. Turns out God had a way better plan than they did. In one week, Paul went from experiencing the fullness of injustice, of hatred, false accusation, and an angry crowd to an unprecedented escort to safety provided by the Roman army. God didn't speak a word, but absolutely demonstrated that he is very much in control of the situation. So let's talk about the letter of transfer, which the commander writes, and we read in verses 26 to 30. It's here that we find out that the commander's name is Claudius Lysias, and what he writes is accurate, but a bit self-serving, right, as most official correspondence usually is. Claudius certainly isn't going to write about how he put Paul in chains or prepared to have Paul flogged or how he kept pursuing answers from Paul rather than out of the crowd or the Sanhedrin. Instead, he writes, This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him, but I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. Well, you learned that he was a Roman citizen when you were ready to flog him, and that was later. But of course, when people tell a story, they put themselves in the best light, right? They put other people in a negative light and say what they did wrong, but fail to mention their own contribution. Now the letter though also puts Paul in a positive light. He is about to go before Governor Felix who is known as quite cruel. Felix and his brother Pallas were former slaves who ascended to positions of influence in the Roman government. It was Emperor Claudius who appointed Felix governor of Caesarea and so elevated him to an even higher level. The ancient historian Tacitus describes his seven-year administration this way. He practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. So putting Paul in a positive light is very appropriate with regards to Governor Felix, and we'll see more of this next week. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, probably did not have access to an actual official correspondence in the letter of transfer from the commander to the governor. However, the essence of the letter was likely conveyed to Paul, and Paul then shared it with Luke. And so verse 25, literally what Luke writes is, and he wrote a letter having this form, or having this manner, or to this effect. So he's not trying to quote it word for word. The letter was for the purpose of casting a favorable light on the commander, and on Paul, so that Felix would be disposed to think favorably as well. And the letter essentially says that the commander believes Paul is not a criminal, that he ought to be set free. So he summarizes the legal issue and the surrounding circumstances and sends this as an appeal to the governor to adjudicate. Felix had the authority to simply set Paul free on the basis of his citizenship and on the basis of the commander's recommendation. But for a variety of reasons, all of which would be speculative, he doesn't do that. But it is all according to God's divine purposes, as we will continue to see in the weeks to come. So let's think about God's sovereignty here. God is sovereign over conspiracies. Proverbs 21.30 says, There is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Likewise, Isaiah 8.10, devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand, for God is with us. 
And Psalm 2 begins, Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. In other words, there is no secret conspiracy that can throw God off his game. The sovereign God knows all. Ultimately, he will rescue the righteous and destroy the wicked. As for this conspiracy, the oath that these zealots took, their swearing together, was not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Oops. <laughs> they had completely failed, and so if they really kept their oath, they were all dead within three days from dehydration and starving to death. Not sure that's what happened, but I am sure that you shouldn't mess with God. God is sovereign over conspiracies. Also, God is sovereign when people do wrong. It is absolutely clear that the zealots are wrong. And we often see that people who do wrong things get away with it, even succeed. The psalmist in Psalm 73 with great honesty says, Surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It is tempting to see the wicked prosper in their wickedness and just throw up our hands and say, well, I guess there's nothing you can do about it. But in the end of Psalm 73, the psalmist comes to realize, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? Ultimately, God will rescue the righteous and destroy the wicked. The ministry of the gospel is to minister truth, wisdom, justice, and grace in all circumstances. Sometimes that means we are to point out what is wrong. But again, we remember the wise words of Bob Kellerman. Unhealthy systems want to kill the one who is pointing out the cancer rather than killing the cancer. Sometimes it is right simply to work for truth and rightness in broken systems and broken situations. God may change the situation. God may change you. God may redeem the entire structure. That's what God does because God is sovereign when people do wrong. And that's because God makes and keeps all his promises often in the most unexpected ways. It was back in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, when Paul was first converted on the road to Damascus, and the Lord had revealed to Ananias, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings. And these promises are about to be fulfilled. In the chapters ahead, Paul will be Christ's witness before Governor Felix, Governor Festus, and King Agrippa, all of that before he even reaches Rome. Paul had not testified to any kings while he was free. But now as a prisoner, a victim of circumstances, testifying before kings is exactly what he will do. Perhaps God's plan is to change your circumstances. But perhaps God's plan is for you to be his chosen instrument in the very circumstance in which he has placed you. God makes and keeps all his promises. Know the promises of God and know that he will keep them even when it doesn't seem possible. 
Know the promises of God and expect the unexpected. Know the promises of God and experience freedom even when imprisoned, light even in dark times, and joy even in your circumstance. And may the truth set us free.